On October 31st, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in two cases involving race-based admissions in higher education, one involving Harvard University and the other involving the University of North Carolina. We begin this half hour with a new challenge to affirmative action policies on college campuses. The Supreme Court is now preparing to hear arguments in two major cases that could affect student admissions. The cases involve race-based affirmative action at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Asian and white students allege that policy prioritizes black, Hispanic, and Native American students, which discriminates against them. Any shift when the justices hear the cases later this year would set a new legal precedent. If the suits are successful, colleges and universities may no longer be able to use race as a factor in the admissions process. Spoiler alert, the court will almost certainly rule in favor of the plaintiffs. In practical terms, that means that affirmative action will cease to exist when the court lays down its decision in June. But don't change the channel yet. The story of these two cases is about more than affirmative action. It's about some of the most fraught questions our country has faced since the end of slavery. Questions like, what are the present effects of past discrimination? Is it necessary and proper for the government to distinguish between racial groups to undo racial inequities? Are we willing as a society to discriminate against one group, in Harvard's case, Asian Americans, to help another? And if not, what's our individual, institutional, and governmental responsibility to address those effects? But before we tackle those questions, let's talk about affirmative action itself. There is no doubt that you've heard this term before many times, but what does it mean? We took to the streets to ask New Yorkers if they knew. <laughs> Tell me. Um, like, I don't know. I'm sorry, if I knew, I would I would answer. Affirmative action, I assume, is like, uh, just, I always believed it was like the, uh, just doing something when you feel like you need to do it or something. Affirmative action? Um, like, I don't know, doing things that make you feel no, good, that positively affect not, the Does it world? not, isn't that not? Yeah, but I, I, I really couldn't, honestly. I just kind of thought it was more of like a, like a term, not like actual, uh, court kind of a thing. What, is, what exactly, what, what's go, what are they, why are they overturning it for, what is it? We can forgive them their confusion. Our government itself has muddled the definition. The term affirmative action, at least as it refers to race, first appeared in 1961 when President John F. Kennedy issued an executive order mandating government contractors to, quote, take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and that employees are treated during employment without regard to their race, creed, color, or national origin. When we think of affirmative action today and we think of that term, we usually mean racial preferences, favoring a member of a race who's been discriminated against historically. And we usually associate the term with education, namely the university setting. But that's not how Kennedy meant the term. He simply wanted racially neutral hiring, an end to job discrimination. Mr. President, some Negro leaders are saying that the Negro is entitled to some kind of special When asked by a reporter at an August 1963 press conference whether there should be, quote, some kind of special dispensation for the pain of second-class citizenship for blacks, or his view on, quote, job quotas by race, end quote, Here's what Kennedy said in response. So I, I don't think we can undo the past. In fact, the past is going to be with us in a good many years in uneducated men and women who uh, lost their chance for a decent education. We have to do the best we can now. That's what we're trying to do. I don't think quotas are a good idea. I think it's a mistake to begin to sign quotas on the basis of religion or race, color, nationality. I think we get into a good deal of trouble. It's worth noting that there's a difference between quotas and preferences. And that difference was articulated by the Congress on Racial Equality's James Farmer when he testified in front of Congress in the summer of 1963. He had an exchange with New Jersey Democrat Peter Rodino, and Farmer rejected quotas, but he endorsed a tie-breaking preference if a black and a white candidate were otherwise equally qualified. We in the past, you know, fought against quotas in colleges and universities. Because we felt that quotas were used to discriminate. We'll circle back to this question of quotas versus preferences. But it's worth noting that at the time, many civil rights leaders and sympathizers endorsed something close to a race-blind standard. That my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. There's a huge debate over whether leaders like MLK truly believed a colorblind world was possible. 
But there's ample evidence many of them believe the government should act as if it's colorblind. Even the venerated decision in Brown versus Board of Education professes all men are created equal and that each person must be treated, quote, as an American and not as a member of a particular group classified on the basis of race, end quote. This echoes Justice Marshall Harlan's famous dissent a half century earlier in Plessy versus Ferguson, in which he said, quote, our constitution is colorblind, end quote. This begs the question, if our constitution is colorblind, why did it count slaves as three-fifths a person? If it's colorblind, why did courts and elected leaders allow discrimination, disenfranchisement, segregation, and state-sponsored racial violence to continue long after the ratification of the 14th Amendment, which is supposed to guarantee equal protection under the law? After all, the very Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment also established the Freedmen's Bureau Act and a host of other programs to help former slaves by providing targeted support to black Americans. Meaning, the Congress and the state legislatures that ratified the 14th Amendment were hardly race neutral, whether they were pushing policies based on racial animus or a sincere desire to rectify past wrongs. Now, it's possible that the post-Reconstruction Constitution was supposed to be colorblind, Maybe it just wasn't being interpreted properly. But nobody disputes that government-sponsored violence and discrimination lasted for centuries. Is it enough to simply say, let's stop discriminating now? Or should we as a society do more? That's the dilemma that faced JFK's successor. You do not wipe away the scars of centuries by saying now, you are free to go where you want and do as you desire and choose the leaders you please. That's President Lyndon Baines Johnson delivering the 1965 commencement address at the historically black Howard University. You do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberating, bringing up to the starting line of a race and then say, you are free to compete with all the others and still justly believe that you have been completely fair. Thus. It is not enough just to open the gates of opportunity. All our citizens must have the ability to walk through those gates. LBJ spoke of a new interventionist stage of the civil rights struggle. In essence, he was saying it wasn't enough to not discriminate. He was arguing that our country's history of slavery, Jim Crow, and countless other forms of racism had put black residents at such a disadvantage that we had to intervene to ensure equality, to undo the present effects of past injustice. At the time of that speech, for every dollar in wealth of a middle-class black family, a white family had 10 times the amount. The average educational level of an African-American was two-thirds that of whites, while more than half of black men over 25 had a grammar school education and a jaw-dropping 67% failed the armed forces pre-induction test. To use LBJ's metaphor, once the chains came off, if you believe they ever did, the race was well over. But for all of his talk of aggressive intervention, LBJ came to embrace a colorblind vision. The very text of Title VII of his signature Civil Rights Act states, nothing in this title shall be interpreted to require any employer to grant preferential treatment to any individual or to any group because of their race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Here we had a Civil Rights Act that forbade discrimination in the workplace, but also barred preferential treatment to any group who'd suffered discrimination. This is what scholar John David Scrantony labeled the irony of affirmative action. That irony meant that African-Americans continued to see major obstacles in all areas of life, including in the job market. Employers would claim that they're just hiring the most skilled person for the job, and they would often exhibit no legally remediable signs of discrimination. Yet they'd show no progress in employing minorities. This raised an important question. What could the government do if employers continued to drag their feet? The Johnson administration did little to answer this question, and over time only added to the confusion. As businesses demanded guidance on how to comply with the administration's directives, a senior Johnson Labor Department official, Edward C. Sylvester Jr., issued the following statement. Quote, there is no fixed or firm definition of affirmative action. I would say in a general way, affirmative action is anything that you have to do to get results. But this does not necessarily include preferential treatment. The key word here is results, end quote. But Johnson and Kennedy didn't get results. As Johnson left the office in 1969, the office that they'd set up to enforce affirmative action in employment, the OFCC, had not taken away one major contract from a company that discriminated or failed to hire black applicants. 
and hopes were not high for their successor, Richard Nixon, who assumed the presidency on a Southern strategy that stirred up racial resentment. Uh, I just think that right now, uh, the South is uh, moving into a position where it's going to play a very great role in this nation. And I want Nixon's presidency these, uh, was, to put it lightly, a bundle of contradictions. His administration opposed the extension of the Voting Rights Act and supported the state of Mississippi in opposition to the use of busing to enforce desegregation. It's wrong for the white children, it's wrong for the black children that will have the effect of creating hatreds, hatreds among the kids. Nixon even called busing a new evil. So few were expecting aggressive deployment of affirmative action from Nixon, but he surprised almost everyone. He was a political animal and sensed an opportunity to force the Democrats to choose between two of their main constituents, labor and African-Americans. Ground zero for this effort was in Philadelphia, where the federal government was planning to construct a slew of new buildings, including a new U.S. Mint. At the time, the city was about 30% black, yet the city's unions were almost all white. The Iron Workers Union, for example, had 850 members, and only 12 were black. In response, the Nixon administration adopted what was dubbed the Philadelphia Plan, declaring that years of segregation and discrimination made it necessary to adopt, quote, goals or specific percentages for minority employees. If locals wanted to win contracts, they'd have to meet a minority goal, which would increase each year, reaching 20% by 1973. That sounds an awful lot like a quota, a word that by then had become toxic in political discourse. Here's Nixon's Secretary of Labor, George Shultz. And so the Philadelphia plan said, you know, that quotas or anything, but it just said, you gotta have some, gotta hire some people, and you ought to have an objective, and you ought to have a timetable, and get some, that's the way you manage anything, manage that. And of course, it became very controversial. And when pressed on the Philadelphia and plan in a congressional hearing, Secretary Schultz backed away from endorsing a quota and instead advocated for, quote, a reasonable range of choice in the hiring process. As a historian, Thomas Anderson noted, Quote, nothing was clarified by this exchange and little wonder that many Americans have been confused about affirmative action ever since. Nixon had an effect join the bipartisan chorus, three presidents in a row who flirted with an aggressive definition of affirmative action before backing down. Nixon would eventually go even further, performing an about face on his own policy. During his 1972 campaign, he completely abandoned his own prior support for affirmative action and hiring dubbing the Democrats the, quote, quota party, and his opponent McGovern the quota candidate. He also signed an order prohibiting the use of quotas in minority hiring for federal contracts, bewildering his own staff and most observers, like the Washington Post, who asked how Nixon could square his opposition to quotas with the fact that his Justice Department, earlier that year, asked a federal court to order Mississippi to fill half of its state highway patrol vacancies with members of minority groups. The confusion over affirmative action and employment bled over to the debate over university admissions, a debate that was starting to heat up as Nixon was rounding out his beleaguered tenure. And given that universities were and are some of the most liberal institutions in society, many of them took the most expansive interpretation they could from the helter-skelter JFK, LBJ, Nixon, affirmative action flip-flops. In short, Throughout the 60s and 70s, many universities adopted race-conscious admissions policies to remedy past discrimination, whether they be preferences, goals, or quotas. That led to a backlash from some white students and conservative legal groups who began to challenge these laws using both the text of the Civil Rights Act and of the 14th Amendment. The first prominent challenge to make its way to the Supreme Court came in 1978. The case was involved the University of California at Davis Medical School. That's Ted Shaw, a UNC law professor who served as the president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and who's been on the front lines of debates over affirmative action since the 1970s. The plaintiff was Alan Bakke, a white student who had not been admitted, but the University of California at Davis Medical School had put in place an affirmative action program in admissions a few years before he applied. He applied to a whole bunch of law school, uh, medical schools, didn't get into any of them, but Davis had this affirmative action program in which they specifically set aside 16 out of uh, their 100 seats in the entering class. In fact, they had expanded the class to be able to set aside those 16 seats. To be clear, the university set aside 16 seats each year for racial minority students. 
This dual track system resulted in admissions odds of 29 to 1 for all students, but 10 to 1 for minorities. Alan Bakke had an MCAT score of 359 compared to an average of 309 for regular admissions. The average score for the so-called special admissions process was 138. When Bakke was rejected, he sued the school. The public knows little about him, and that's because Alan Bakke wants to remain as unknown as possible. In what is believed to be his first interview ever, we spoke today about the decision and about his penchant for privacy. I'm pleased with the decision, and that's all I intend to comment about it. Why haven't you spoken out before? Uh, it's, my, it's my personal preference to uh, not to speak publicly about the case. I like to keep my private life private. The court found in Baki's favor granting him admissions to medical school. But far from settling the matter of affirmative action, Baki further muddled it. The court's nine justices, like the presidential administrations that came before them, couldn't agree on a rationale. Four justices thought the UC Davis admissions program violated neither Title VI, which is the provision of the Civil Rights Act that applies to education, nor the Constitution, because the policy was designed to offset societal discrimination. Another four thought that Title VI prohibits all race-based admissions. That left Justice Jerome Powell, who wrote what many interpreted to be the controlling opinion. The court was badly splinted, badly split. And so it was what can be described as a 414 court. The one in the middle was Justice Lewis Powell, who wrote an opinion that became known as the Bakke opinion, even though there were many questions over the years, particularly from conservatives who were unhappy with the opinion. Powell voted to uphold affirmative action as a practice in theory, but struck down the Davis admissions policy because it was a quota. Ted Shaw was in the Supreme Court the day the Bakke decision was handed down. I heard those decisions announced. And I left the Supreme Court that day devastated. I was a law student about to go to my third year of law school. I was devastated because for African-Americans at that time, and in many ways ever since, uh, Bakke was a loss for a number of reasons that I could describe. You know, the opinion by Justice Powell, uh, which uh, lifted up diversity as a rationale, snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. Uh, but it was not the rationale that, or certainly not the rationale that I would have chosen. What's important and often overlooked about Powell's decision is that he didn't embrace President Johnson's sometimes interventionist view of a federal government to remedy past discrimination. Instead, he talked about diversity. Powell wrote about a rationale for affirmative action that was different than that which had been adopted and put in place for many years. He, for the first time, talked about a diversity rationale. And that diversity rationale did a number of things, but it was not a rationale that supported efforts to remedy past segregation and discrimination and exclusion. It was a rationale that said that colleges and universities had a an interest. And in fact, it's a First Amendment interest in academic freedom in admitting students who would bring diversity to the institution. And uh, it wasn't clear whether the four liberal justices explicitly joined that rationale, but the assumption for many years was that they must have. To Shaw, this new diversity rationale centered the debate not on black students, but on the universities themselves. It was not a rationale that uh, gave us an opinion and a decision uh, rooted in the 14th Amendment interests of African-Americans and people of color. It was a First Amendment-rooted rationale uh, that belonged to the universities. For Shaw, the biggest problem with the Bakke decision was that it failed to take into account the history and the context of the 14th Amendment. Uh, the Bakke decision said that there's no distinction to be drawn between race-conscious measures that are based in notions of inferiority and intended to subordinate people on the basis of race on the one hand, and on the other hand, race-conscious measures that are 
aim to bring about inclusion. And of course, there's a difference between those two things. But the court said for purposes of application of the 14th Amendment, those activities should all be treated exactly the same, which makes them presumptively unconstitutional. That was deeply problematic in in my view and in the views of many others, particularly black and brown people. But that's one of the problems with the the Bakke decision. If you look at the 14th Amendment, the 39th Congress, which is the Congress that adopted that amendment, at the same time that it adopted the 14th Amendment, it also enacted all kinds of race-conscious measures to help those who had come out of slavery. Shaw has a point. The same Congress that adopted the 14th Amendment also established the Freedmen's Bureau, which set up hospitals and schools for African-Americans emerging from slavery. And as I mentioned earlier, they took a number of race-conscious measures to attempt to set former slaves on a more equal footing. So how could that same Congress that adopted the, the 14th Amendment intend that any race-conscious measures be treated as a violation of that same amendment? The Supreme Court ignored that argument, basically, and all but killed remedial affirmative action uh, and higher education ever since lifted up diversity. And diversity became not only one of the core principles in American life. Despite Shaw's disappointment, the years after Bakke were in many ways the zenith of affirmative action. A 1979 Harris poll found that 71% of whites believe that, quote, as long as there are no rigid quotas, that after years of discrimination, it is only fair to set up special programs to make sure that women and minorities are given every chance to have special opportunities in employment and education, end quote. In the years after the Bakke decision, universities started to use Powell's diversity rationale as a justification for racial preferences while mostly trying to avoid explicit quotas, which would have run them afoul of the Supreme Court. A few years after Bakke, a survey of law and medical school admissions officers found that most of them believed their competitors were still using quotas, but that they themselves had reformed. The number of underrepresented minorities admitted to medical schools remained stable or rose, yet never quite reached representative numbers. As of 1968, black students represented only 2% of medical student enrollment. That number climbed to 6% in 1991, yet remained relatively stable and had not yet exceeded 8% as of 2019. For decades, there was widespread confusion around how to interpret Bakke. After all, the majority failed to line up behind a test for permissible affirmative action. The court went a long way in clarifying its standard in two cases from 2003 involving the University of Michigan. In one case, Grutter versus Bollinger, a 5-4 majority of the court explicitly adopted Bakke's diversity rationale and found that the University of Michigan Law School's admissions process passed muster because they sought, quote, a critical mass of underrepresented minority students, end quote. That was a goal that the court distinguished from a quota or outright racial balancing. My name is Jennifer Gratz, and I'm a software trainer in Oceanside, California. This case isn't about being accepted or not being accepted. It's about being treated fairly. But in another case, Gratz versus Bollinger, which involved the University of Michigan undergraduate program, the court ruled 6-3 against the university because it mechanically gave every underrepresented minority one-fifth of the points needed to guarantee admissions. But many, on both sides of the debate, believed that the effect of the dual rulings was to remove transparency from the admissions process. In her dissent in Gratz, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg observed, quote, If honesty is the best policy, surely Michigan's accurately described, fully disclosed college affirmative action program is preferable to achieving similar numbers through winks, nods, and disguises, end quote. Here you had one arm of the university, the undergraduate college, that was penalized for being fully forthcoming about how it took race into account. And then you had the law school admissions process, which was described as holistic, that was allowed to continue. Now, the law school claimed it gave individualized consideration and did not elevate race above the many other facets of diversity. But in reality, many observers charged that the Michigan Law School used larger racial preferences than the undergraduate admissions process and gave virtually no weight to other diversity characteristics. As Ginsburg predicted, 
The ruling was a signal to universities to cloak their affirmative action programs in, quote, winks, nods, and disguises. In effect, they were removing any transparency. If we were to try to summarize the post-Gruder Supreme Court standard on the issue, it'd be the following. You could take race into account in admissions, but you can't have a quota. You can't engage in what they call racial balancing, meaning designating a set percentage or amount of seats for a given racial group. You must also consider race-neutral alternatives, and you have to ensure that race-based policies are, quote, limited in time. This is the context that birthed the two cases the Supreme Court is set to hear on October 31st, one involving the University of North Carolina, a state school, and another involving Harvard University, a private college. Of the two cases before the court, the Harvard case has gotten the lion's share of the public attention because of the university's role as perhaps our nation's most prestigious institution of higher education. Admissions offices at private universities like Harvard tend to be black boxes, sparing and often self-serving in the information they're willing to share with the public. But because of the trial's discovery process, the public has been able to examine and analyze years of admissions data, including admissions rates by race, geography, socioeconomic status, as well as grades, standardized test scores, extracurriculars, and ratings from admissions officers. Prior to that case, we just have to take university officials at their words when they describe their admissions practices. But for the first time, the public is able to peek under the hood, not just of any institution, but one that has served as a gateway to power and privilege at the highest levels of society. We'll be back. This is Regressives. Now as background, for much of its early history, Harvard's admissions process was based solely on academic performance. But in the 1920s, the university's leaders became alarmed by the growing number of Jewish students who are testing in. And the university president, Abbott Lawrence Lowell, proposed a 15% cap on Jewish students. But that was deemed too overt for other Harvard administrators, and instead they opted for a policy of, quote, equal opportunity, moving from an objective system to one that included subjective criteria like character and fitness. This so-called holistic system of admissions allowed Harvard to develop a plausible explanation for a nearly 15% drop in Jewish students in the years to come. Fast forward to today. Another group is arguing that Harvard is using the same admissions process to exclude them. This time our plaintiffs are Asian American students who claim they've been discriminated against in the Harvard selection process. All right, so have you heard of Edward Bloom? Maybe the name isn't ringing a bell, but I'm sure you're familiar with some of his work. Despite not being a lawyer, Bloom has been behind some of the most high-profile Supreme Court cases of the last decade, including... They're represented by an organization called Students for Fair Admissions, SFFA, a group founded by a conservative activist named Edward Blum. SFFA filed suit in a federal court in Massachusetts in 2018. It concerns whether Harvard, one of the most selective schools in the world, is unfairly discriminating against Asian American applicants. Many believe the court ruled in Harvard's favor, as did a federal appeals court. Now the case is in front of the Supreme Court. It's tempting to think of this case exclusively as a referendum on affirmative action. But Harvard Law School professor Jeannie Suk Gerson believes the case starts with a simple question. Well, one thing that's really interesting about this case is that when it was at trial, which is the proceeding that I observed in person, the tri entire trial was focused on the question of whether Harvard discriminated intentionally against Asian American applicants in the admissions process. That question of was there intent to diminish the numbers of Asian applicants so that fewer of them would be accepted, right? That's that was the question that factually was being tried in the, the case at the trial level. Now that it's in the Supreme Court of the United States, the Supreme Court has granted cert on a, a kind of different question, you know, distinct question, which is, should affirmative action using race as a factor be declared to be illegal and thereby overturning the court's prior precedents on this question? There's a kind of separation between those two questions because it, at the trial that question was not litigated basically at all, mainly because it was settled U.S. Supreme Court precedent that it was perfectly legal to use race as a factor. That trial was really about discrimination against Asians and whether um, Harvard had disobeyed the Supreme Court's rulings. Now that it's at the Supreme Court, 
it's it's no longer about whether Asians have been intentionally discriminated against. It's now just about whether affirmative action should be used at all. Let's answer that threshold question. Did Harvard discriminate against Asian Americans? Here's what Professor Sue Gerson had to say. One thing that I think is was so shocking when it came out in the trial, I think it caused an audible gasp. When Harvard sent letters of recruitment to students to sort of say, hey, here's Harvard, you should think about applying. They sent them to students in an area of the country that Harvard calls sparse country, which is, you know, states that traditionally don't have a lot of people applying to Harvard's, let's say. So we're talking about Nevada, Idaho, states like that. They sent recruitment letters to students in those states. And so if you were a white boy in that state, you would get a letter from Harvard recruiting you um, if you had a 1310 SAT score. But if you were an Asian boy in the same state, I mean, it could literally be that they could be in the same school, they could live next door to each other. If you were an Asian boy in that same state, you had to have an SAT score of 1370 to get Harvard to send a recruitment letter to you. Now, there's no difference between those two students except for their race, and it's white versus Asian. That comparison between how they treated white students versus Asian students. That, to me, is the most telling evidence about discrimination against Asians. You know, forget about even affirmative action policies and how they're looking at Black or Hispanic applicants. Just comparing the white student numbers and the Asian student numbers and how they're treating those two groups, that's really what's the most revealing about discrimination against Asians. I asked Professor Gerson whether the Harvard team was asked about this practice during trial and how they explain this discrepancy. Yes, the dean of admissions on the stand in the Harvard trial was directly asked about it, of course. And he um, said something about how somebody who is a, say, a recent immigrant, as an Asian probably would be in, say, Nevada, might not have the same kind of connection to the state as someone who had, whose family had been there for a long time. So I guess generations of Nevadans. And it was not clear exactly what he could mean by that. It didn't sound great. The data that's been most widely cited by the plaintiffs involves the discrepancy between objective and subjective factors in the admissions process. It was very clear and undisputed at trial that Asians had better scores than white applicants on the SATs, on the grades, and the extracurricular activities. All of them, Asians scored better than whites. But the thing that they scored the worst on, and they scored the worst of any racial group, Asians scored the worst on what's called the personality rating or the personal rating. And that personal rating was one that was based on admissions officers' evaluation of an applicant's personal qualities like courage, integrity, helpfulness, likability, and my favorite, effervescence. So those are the qualities that they're being given a score on. And on that, Asians are being ranked you know, quite low compared to the other racial groups and certainly compared to whites. If this sounds familiar, it's because it's nearly identical to what Harvard did to Jewish students decades ago. As a side note, this is why I believe in standardized testing. It may not be perfect, but it's objective and less amenable to this kind of funny business. Okay, back to the case at hand. The data here is startling. The proportion of applicants who received a one or two academic rating, which is Harvard's highest, was 60% for Asian Americans, 46% for whites, 17% for Hispanics, 9% for blacks. That mirrors patterns in SAT scores and high school grades. So let's compare that to the personality ratings by race. For applicants in the top 10th academic decile, the percentage of applicants with the high personal ratings was 49% for blacks, 36% for Hispanics, 31% for whites, and 23% for Asian Americans. So it's the exact opposite of the academic ratings. As the economist Richard Sander points out in an amicus brief, this racial hierarchy is repeated in every academic decile. For example, among students in the seventh academic decile, the share of students receiving high personal ratings is 41% for blacks, 31% for Hispanics, 24% for whites, and 18% for Asian Americans. You could repeat this process over and over again. What can account for this discrepancy? 
A Duke economist that SFFA hired to delve into this data argued that there were only two possible explanations for this. Either Harvard's admissions officers were biased against Asian American applicants, or the personality score was simply a pretext to include race as a defining category of admissions. Harvard hired their own economist, Berkeley's David Card, who acknowledged that Asians did in fact have lower personality scores. I'll repeat that. Their own economists argued that Asians have lower personality scores. And he wrote, quote, white applicants are in fact stronger on average on non-academic factors that Harvard values, end quote. Is he right? Maybe Asian Americans are less likely to take on leadership positions in high school or be involved in extracurricular activities. But the data suggests otherwise. Harvard's own extracurricular ratings, which are more formulaic than its personal ratings, show a strong association between academic achievement and extracurricular achievement. For example, among applicants in the top 10th academic decile, the percentage of students with high extracurricular ratings is 38% for Blacks, 35% for Asian Americans, 32% for Whites, and 29% for Hispanics. So if, if you think that this is because of discrimination, all of the discrimination is happening in the personal rating. That's w- where it is localized because they're not being downgraded on any other category. And then, so then Harvard, the admissions office takes the entire thing and gives every applicant an overall rating. And within that overall rating, you are allowed to take into account race as one factor. And so that's how it all washed out. And so I think that personal rating is something that that was problematic. And I think the trial judge even recognized that implicit bias may be playing a role. But implicit bias is not the same thing under federal law as intentional discrimination that is illegal. While the court found implicit bias, others think Harvard's intent may have been more explicit. And the plaintiffs argued, even if you if you take them at their word and that the personal rating is race neutral as they claim it's supposed to be, and then perhaps that gives rise to questions of implicit bias. That's Corey Liu, a Houston attorney and former volunteer executive director for Students for Fair Admissions, the plaintiffs in this case. The person thinks they're being race neutral, but actually the results year after year show that Asians are disadvantaged, then maybe there's something wrong in the evaluator's uh, eyes. And, and perhaps, you know, students who come from immigrant backgrounds who spoke two languages at home, maybe they're going to be a little less confident or a little less outgoing because they struggled to fit in and things like that. Um, Of course, I I think the evidence shows that they probably were secretly using race in that part of the consideration. But I think there's also questions of just in this holistic process overall, how do you eliminate bias? How do you eliminate, you know, differences in culture, right? If Asian culture, you know, looks a little different than Western culture, right? How are you? How do you make sure you're not disadvantaging a student based on you know, whatever biases the evaluator has? The effects of the personal rating were dramatic. After the discovery process in the case and some Harvard was forced to turn over some of the uh, relevant evidence that it had, it came out that Harvard had done its own internal investigation into the question of whether Asians were disadvantaged and found some pretty damaging evidence and that it showed that if, if race wasn't considered, there'd be more Asian students, and there were other factors as well that decreased the number of Asian students. They actually found that if it was academics only, uh, Asian students would be over 40% of the student body. And then once you add in legacy, uh, donor preferences, athletic preferences, and then other factors as well, then ultimately race, uh, it would decrease the number to about 17 to 18%. And so the argument presented the case, and I think that the evidence shows, is that Asians were being treated even worse than white students, even though, you know, they, if you were looking at someone as an individual, you'd be looking at whether they were disadvantaged, whether they come from an immigrant background, they spoke two, fam- uh, two languages. It's worth noting that this is the same admissions process that the Baki court held up as an exemplar. Justice Powell, in his controlling opinion from 1978, pointed to Harvard's admissions policy as the gold standard and said that in that case, quote, race or ethnic background may be deemed a plus in a particular applicant's file, yet it does not insulate the individual from comparison with all other candidates, end quote. So here we have Powell, a Harvard man himself, who likely didn't realize at the time that the very model he was endorsing, the deference he was affording to admissions officers, combined with a lack of transparency that would be used to erect an invisible ceiling on an entire race just decades later. This would be like Usain Bolt beating his nearest opponent in the 100-meter sprint by a full second, only to lose the race because judges felt he didn't run with enough effervescence. 
Harvard is really suspicious here. And at this point, I'm convinced by the data that they've discriminated against Asian Americans. The question becomes, now what? What do we do? One option is for Asian Americans to suck it up and take a hit in the name of racial justice. I haven't really heard a lot of denial that there is a disadvantage. Uh, these include Professor Randall Kennedy from Harvard, uh, Ted Shaw from the University of North Carolina. And, and their response tends to be, you know, look, African-Americans have suffered a much worse history in the United States that's still being worked through. And so Asians Americans are just going to have to deal with it. And so I, I can understand where they're coming from on that. At the same time, I disagree because the, the Supreme Court has never really grappled with the possibility that these policies could be hurting racial minorities. They've always thought of the disadvantage imposed on the white majority in exchange for whatever benefits are for racial minorities. But the, the story of Asian Americans complicates things. And, and I don't think there's it's hard to deny when you look at the facts of the Harvard case. And I will say there's been a number of Asian American authors who said in their pieces that they either support affirmative action policies or at least understand why affirmative action policies exist. I asked Ted Shaw about this. I think that uh, this is an enormously complex issue. Obviously, if they are treating Asian Americans differently by saying that their personalities somehow put them at a disadvantage, I would say that that's, that's problematic, obviously. I'm not going to defend that. But it's one thing to say that Harvard needs to change some aspects of how they do admissions to make sure that they're treating Asian Americans with that respect or in that respect fairly. It's another thing to be out to completely undo the Bakke slash Gruder line of jurisprudence, which is going to mean that black students and brown students, uh, Latinx students, are going to be admitted in lower numbers. When Shaw says, that's problematic, obviously. I'm not going to defend that. It's worth remembering that most activists who've lined up behind Harvard are defending that, whether they realize it or not. They may say that they'd love to solve Harvard's discrimination through other means, but they've done very little to hold Harvard accountable in the past. And it wasn't until this case was filed that the university began to address their discrimination against Asian Americans. Here's Professor Gerson again. Since the, the Harvard case began, Harvard has been about a quarter Asian. A quarter of the entering class is Asian. Um, when the suit was filed in 2014, Harvard was about 20% Asian. And then in years before that, it was, it was less than 20%. So we've gone from 20% to 25% ever since the suit was filed. Absent the threat of litigation, it's hard to imagine Harvard changing their ways. But Professor Gerson believes you can be against the discrimination against Asian Americans while also supporting some form of affirmative action. You can have a system of affirmative action where race is used as a factor, where Asians are not discriminated against. And you can have a system of affirmative action where Asians are discriminated against. The two don't necessarily completely uh, track in terms of the result. You could also have a system without affirmative action in which Asians will still be discriminated against on the basis of their race. And you could have a system without affirmative action in which Asians wouldn't be discriminated against on the basis of their race. So, so if you see what I mean, these are two distinct questions. Gerson believes that both Harvard and its opponents have an interest in making this case about affirmative action writ large. And I think that it was almost um, implicitly collusive on both sides of the case, on Harvard's side and the plaintiff's side, that to commingle those, those issues and make them very hard to disentangle actually serve both of their interests. Because people who are in favor of affirmative action are often reflexively rejecting the idea that Asians could be discriminated against in admissions. And people who are against affirmative action tend to sort of lift up the Asian American claim of intentional discrimination. This is the rare case in which plaintiffs and defendants' interests align. Students for fair admissions pounced on a favorable fact pattern, an opportunity to force affirmative action proponents to choose between different marginalized groups. And then Harvard, on the other hand, saw an opportunity to recruit allies and deflect from their own allegedly discriminatory practices. Headlines of Harvard defending affirmative action are far more favorable to Harvard denying discrimination against Asian Americans. 
Both sides have gotten what they wanted. Given the current makeup of the court, students for fair admissions will almost certainly win this case, and they'll do so with a more diverse plaintiff base than the affirmative action opponents have put forth in the past. Harvard, on the other hand, has successfully changed the conversation about its own practices, attracting an army of eager progressive institutions and scholars to its corner. Lining up behind it are the Biden administration, over 80 Fortune 500 companies, including Apple, Meta, and Starbucks, and a constellation of civil rights groups. These allies, including many in the media, have accepted Harvard's framing of the case. The New York Times Daily, for example, decried the case as the, quote, the Dobbs of affirmative action. And the Washington Post's Ruth Marcus devoted eight paragraphs to the UNC and Harvard cases recently, also making the Dobbs comparison, yet never once mentioned Asian Americans. I wonder how much thought these groups have given to whether Asian Americans have been discriminated against. Somehow, Corporate and progressive society seems totally fine lining up in favor of a discriminatory practice. How could that be? Here's what Gerson had to say about that. But because this is a case about Harvard, and it is about a group, Asian Americans, who are overrepresented in terms of the numbers, they're really outperforming their numbers in the population. And I think it's hard to have sympathy for the claim, oh, boo-hoo, I didn't get accepted to Harvard. So I think that that's, that's one thing that cuts against sort of public support. I also think that whether it's civil rights groups or employers or other schools that are on Harvard's side and not on the SSFA's side, one of the things that came out in the trial was just how dire the situation would be in terms of diversity in the admissions process if they couldn't use race as a factor. So Harvard put on evidence that essentially only half of the applicants who are African-American that are admitted would be admitted under a system with no affirmative action. And it was something very similarly dire with respect to Hispanic applicants. And so given that that's the case, probably whether it's corporations or other kinds of employers, they're thinking the same thing, that they're not going to be able to have the kind of diverse workforce that they want to have, that they believe is important to their mission and lines up with their values to have a diverse workforce, racially diverse and other kinds of diversity. So how are you going to get there if you're not using race as a factor? And if you can't do that, you're not going to have as diverse a workforce. This is the diversity rationale that Shaw spoke of earlier. As he feared, these cases have become less about remedying past injustice and more about something else the kind of community a university creates, or the employees that corporations can employ. It's not that everybody's using the diversity rationale. When I listen to public debates, you hear people like ta Coates or others, they're using our history of racism and discrimination to justify current policy. And so for a century after the Civil War, black people were subjected to a relentless campaign of terror, a campaign that extended well into the lifetime of Majority Leader McConnell. But you rarely hear those justifications in court briefs or decisions or from the mouths of university officials. And if they were forced to justify their actions based on past discrimination and injustice, it's hard to imagine they'd be able to do so at the expense of a racial minority that itself has faced past injustice. Only a diversity rationale could allow for that. Writing in the Grutter versus Bollinger decision, then-Justice Sandra Day O'Connor predicted that, quote, 20 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to advance the goals of diversity on campus. Necessary or not, that 25-year window is closing five years early. Professor Gerson and I discuss what comes next. She believes the court could allow for more backdoor forms of affirmative action. I'm more skeptical. Here's our exchange on this question. So there are a few things that that can happen after affirmative action is declared to be impermissible. There was, in, or and perhaps still is, in Texas at the University of Texas, an admissions policy that they use where they just admitted 10%, the top 10% of each high school in the state. And that's a race-neutral way of admitting people, right? You're not taking into account people's race. You're just saying whatever high school you're at, if you're in the top 10%, you are uh, you you get admission. And it may be because of we have residential segregation and thereby we also have school-based segregation in the United States even though it's not, you know, 
de jure segregation. We have de facto segregation in lots of parts of our country. And so if you have a school that is predominantly of one race, for example, Black students who are who are going to a predominantly Black high school um, who are in the 10%, regardless of whatever other admissions factors that may exist, they will get admitted. And so that is just, I say all that just to give an example of a race-neutral means of achieving a certain level of racial diversity. And it is not uh, on the Supreme Court's docket right now to get rid of those kinds of race-neutral methods. It is very possible, of course, that this Supreme Court, being as conservative as it is, might even reach out to be like, oh, even those things are, are, are questionable. If you're trying to achieve racial diversity at all, even race-neutral methods might not be permissible. I, I don't think so, though. Mm-hmm. I think probably they're going to say race-neutral methods are perfectly fine. And so I think that schools like Harvard will, you know, after June of 2023, sit down and really try to calculate what kind of diversity they can achieve using race-neutral methods that don't actually say, oh, this person is of this race or that race, but something. And and I will just point out to you that the personality rating, the personal rating, that is a race-neutral metric. Yeah. Well, this is where I get a little bit confused from a question of law because you're going to say that the personality metric is race-neutral. You look at the Thomas Jefferson High School case in Virginia is kind of what you're describing, which is they took the magnet school test-based approach, and then they they used a geographic diversity. I think it was basically saying like, hey, look, we're going to like take a certain amount of kids from each school. But I think what was interesting about the Thomas Jefferson case and Harvard, to an extent, but probably more true of the Thomas Jefferson case, is that you had school board members on record essentially admitting that they were creating this policy in order to discriminate against Asian Americans. Now, I wouldn't say like it was a smoking gun exactly like I said it, but they acknowledged it in text messages to each other that they knew this was the effect of it. But let's pretend for a second that it was an even bigger smoking gun. Like let's say five years from now, Harvard is is, is sued again over what you described. I know it's Harvard, so it won't be the top 10%. So percent is like the 1%, 0.1 or whatever. And then they, they, they interview admissions officers and the admissions officers say, it is a race neutral policy in its implementation, but in intent, we designed it to get at race. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. we designed it as a workaround. How do you think this court would see that? Because that's almost what we see. That's almost a that could be a question they even answer now, right? It like could. when they look at the personality measure, you know? Yes, it is very possible that sort of um, even without being asked the question, they could they could put in some statements that go to that. But the way I see it is, if there was some kind of smoking gun that said we want to keep Asians out, so let's have a race neutral method to that doesn't look like it's about race, but it is to because we don't want Asians. We don't want too many of them anyway. Right. Like that is a smoking gun and that is essentially not going to be okay. But yeah. no one's gonna be no one's gonna be saying that. <laughs> they're going to be right. saying something like they're saying right now, which is what we want is a diverse student body, diverse on all dimensions. Yeah. We just want diversity and we and that's important to us as part of our mission. And so we're going to use this race neutral method to get there. So that would be an interesting question because honestly, the Supreme Court's law on intentional discrimination in instances where someone says they were discriminated against, but what the what the you know institution has done, like say an employer has done, is totally race neutral. It's really, really damn hard to prove intentional discrimination according to those cases. And I don't see the Supreme Court making it any easier. Yeah, to prove that it's a weird thing, and maybe this is just what we'll end is like. It is weird that the conservative justices would be the ones to create a more robust interpretation of that particular set of law in this very case, if it were to happen. Right, like they're normally the people who are trying to create a narrow set of circumstances of which they see intentional discrimination, but in this case. 
the incentive is to see a take a wider lens on it. And same is true vice versa, which I just find really fascinating about this case. It is fascinating. And it's it's a quandary. But I, if I had to really guess, I would say that this Supreme Court, this conservative Supreme Court will eliminate the use of affirmative action as a, as a legal method in admissions, that they will do that without going so far as to say Asians were actually intentionally discriminated against here. But the world Gerson is describing is overlooking one crucial population. This claim about that Harvard made that more than half of admitted African-Americans would most likely not be admitted if they couldn't use race as a factor. That was Harvard's evidence. Of course, that is presented taking for granted the unaltered state of the rest of the admissions program, including the SATs being part of it, and then also the preferences that Harvard gives to athletes' legacies children of donors, and children of faculty and staff. That that category is known as ALDCs for short in the Harvard admissions process. That group, ALDCs, they comprise a third of each class at Harvard, and they are admitted at eight times the rate of other applicants to Harvard. Now, in our next part of this podcast, we're going to talk about those legacy students. But let me close out by talking about why this is personal for me. My name is Ravi Gupta. If you Google my name, the first two results that come up are a partner from Sequoia Capital and a scientist who cured a man of HIV. Now I'm neither of those people and I don't know them, but there's a good chance that they had South Asian parents like my father who were obsessed with academics. But that's likely where our similarities end. My father, he left me when I was in middle school and I was raised by my white mother in a blue collar neighborhood of Staten Island, New York. And in my teenage years, I got my stomach pumped for alcohol poisoning, was caught cutting school, suspended multiple times for fighting and arrested after a fight gone wrong. My mom pulled me out of the local district public school and enrolled me in a Catholic school, which to use a well-worn cliche, saved my life. And through a stroke of luck, I was accepted to Binghamton University the leading light of the State University of New York system. I was such a screw-up at the time that my high school guidance counselor called over to Binghamton's admissions office because he thought I was lying about getting in. But at Binghamton, I turned my life around, earned straight A's, and was rewarded with admissions to Yale Law School. And when I wrote my essays to Yale and other top law schools, I was well aware that the adversity I had overcome was an asset, and I played it up. And if the admissions office took that into account for their equivalent of the personal rating... Well, I'm glad they did, but I was also aware, even back then, that my name wasn't an asset. And whenever given the choice, more often than not, I declined to fill in a bubble for race and applications. And I know many Asian Americans who did and still do the same, knowing full well that it's futile because our names give us away. Now, these cases before the court, despite their cynical origins, have merely given Asian Americans proof of something they've known for a long time to be true that the very policy that was established to even the racial scales in higher education has systematically punished us for our race. And it's tempting to believe that the system was set in place to punish us for wanting it so much. People like my father look at the Ivies and they see the key to success in this country for their kids, the key to stability and safety. And so they apply immense pressure on those of us to excel. And the Ivies look at this attitude and they think, oh, well, that's cheating. It's kind of like a wasp bias against wanting it too much. What they're looking for is not the kid who busts his ass, but the kid who doesn't have to, who is so natively gifted that he deserves to be uplifted. That's why you have the effervescence metric. Wanting it is, well, tacky. But of course, it isn't just about us Asian Americans. In my late 20s and early 30s, I founded and led a charter school in North Nashville that served mostly black students, hailing from a neighborhood with the highest incarceration rate in the country. I love my former students. And if they can get an edge in admissions at the expense of people like me, I'm glad to make that trade. And it shouldn't be foisted on an entire race. For us to create a legitimate system that can withstand legal scrutiny, but also garner political legitimacy, we have to be more honest with people about the sacrifices we're asking them to make for the greater good. And we truly have to be using tools like affirmative action to help the truly disadvantaged. It's one thing to use affirmative action to help Barack Obama's daughters, and it's another thing to use it to help my former students. 
Now, an obvious question is what comes next? If Harvard isn't able to use race in the admissions process, will this lead to a dramatic drop in black and Hispanic students? Dramatic rise in white students? Harvard certainly hasn't done the work to find out. But universities and progressives alike need to ask themselves this question, because however uncomfortable that may be for liberals to admit, when discrimination becomes a weight-bearing pillar of the system, even a well-meaning one, maybe it doesn't deserve to survive. <laughs>